Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome. I'm Georgina Wright. I'm delighted to speak today to David McAllister about the role of the European Parliament in the ongoing UK-EU negotiations. Now, for context, the European Parliament has, over the years, played a much more important role when it comes to the scrutiny and adoption of EU trade deals. Now, in practice, this means two things for the future UK-EU deal. First, members of the European Parliament, just like the 27 EU governments, will need to vote on that final deal. And second, it means that the European Parliament has an interest in the outcome, as well as its own set of demands, which it outlined in a resolution earlier this month. Now, there's no better person to discuss this than David McAllister. For those who don't know, David McAllister is a member of the European Parliament for Germany, the chair of the European Parliament's UK Coordination Group and the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. You will frequently hear him on BBC Radio 4's Today programme, talking mostly these days about Brexit, but also about EU foreign policy and German-British relations. David, welcome. Thank you. So let's start perhaps with the negotiations. Now, the European Parliament resolution um, calls for a comprehensive deal, but even the EU Commission President, von der Leyen, during her visit to London earlier this year, acknowledged that there was limited time for negotiations and that both sides would need to prioritise. So my question really is, what in your view would be the minimum the European Parliament would expect to see in any final UK-EU deal in order to support it? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And um, I'm happy to present the European Parliament's point of view on the ongoing EU-UK negotiations. Well, you started your question with uh, where we are at the moment. Let me begin with that. A lot of time has been lost, and this cannot only be blamed on COVID-19. I wish we had would have seen concrete proposals and texts earlier in the process. We now have barely four months left to square the circle and to find landing zones. So both sides really have to do ever utmost. While I'm here in Brussels, just a few hundred metres away, the negotiations are ongoing. We've started another round of negotiations on Monday. After the high-level meeting, both sides stated there should be new momentum, new impetus in the negotiations. And so we'll have to wait and see if these intensified talks in July actually lead to concrete results. You mentioned the European Parliament. We adopted our resolution on the 18th of June with an overwhelming majority. And what Parliament clearly stated is that we now really want to see tangible progress in all areas in parallel. Um, The European Parliament is still very much interested in finding an agreement with the United Kingdom, but it won't be an agreement at any cost. And we will certainly not accept cherry-picking. The integrity of the single market is of huge importance. So to answer your question, it will be difficult to negotiate a deal given the divergences of positions in key areas. But with the necessary level of political will, I still believe the EU and the UK can manage to negotiate a comprehensive deal by the end of 
taking sort of a closer look perhaps at some of the stumbling blocks, we, we received a question from Dr. John Holman who said, you know, a lot of attention in the UK has been on state aid, but actually there are other areas of level playing field. Um, your resolution talks about this as well. Would the European Parliament, in your view, veto a deal that did not include, for example, references to environmental protection um, and climate change related standards? The level playing field is concretely mentioned in the political declaration of October last year. By the way, this political declaration was painstakingly negotiated by both sides, and it doesn't only carry the signature of the EU officials, but also of the then and now UK Prime Minister. So I'm often asked, what does the European Union actually mean with the level playing field? Well, I always answer what the UK and the EU jointly mean, because we jointly agreed uh, on this uh, political declaration. In the end, this means we know that once the UK has left the single market and the customs union, this great country will be an economic competitor. And we in the EU are for competition, but we're for fair competition. And because of the geographic proximity and the interconnectedness of our economies, and we believe that the UK cannot be treated like a country, for instance, Canada, Japan or South Korea. We need a tailor-made, bespoke cooperation agreement with the UK. And this includes that we both accept existing standards which have shown how important they are. This includes environmental standards, consumer protection standards, state aid, social rights, workers' rights, or fair taxation of companies, to just name a few. The EU has made an offer which never before a third country has received. We are offering tariff-free and quota-free access for British goods to the world's largest single market. It's up to the UK to make a political decision if they want to accept this offer, but I think it's an attractive offer, but it comes at a price, and this price is that we, under no circumstances, will accept the race to the bottom when it comes to the high standards we have worked so hard for, by the way, together with our British EU partners at that time, to have them now uh, enshrined. And that's why I believe it's also in the interest of the UK, of UK citizens and businesses, that we keep these standards on both sides of the channel. That sounds like a lot to negotiate. And as you said, we are running out of time and there has been lots of, lots of uh, lost time as well with um, the pressures on sort of virtual negotiations and everything else. Um, I guess two questions come to mind listening to you. First is, if a deal can be reached, when do you think it is likely that it will be reached? We know the Prime Minister is hoping for something by the end of the month. Um, and second, um, the other thing you hear the government say is, you know, the political declaration was then and this is now. And actually our view and ambition for our, for our deal with the EU has changed. Um, and that, you know, one issue that comes back again and again is obviously fisheries. So the two sides are very far apart. The political declaration uh, was then and we are now. Do you sense any appetite there for movement and negotiation on the EU side? Well, let's start with the um, issue of fisheries. 
Uh, fisheries is highly symbolic for both sides, um, for the UK anyhow, but a number of very important EU member states are also very engaged here. I'll name three, France, Denmark, uh, and the Netherlands. I believe that we can find common ground. I believe there is a landing zone. The European Union is in favour of a complete, balanced and long-term fisheries agreement, allowing the continuation under optimal conditions of access to waters, resources and markets of the parties uh, concerned. Important is to understand that from our point of view, the agreement on fisheries cannot be disconnected from the overall economic partnership. We fully understand that from the 1st of January, the UK will be totally sovereign when it comes to their waters and they can decide who can fish and what can be fished. On the other hand, most of the fish caught in UK territorial waters ends on the EU market. So as the Romans said in Latin, do ut des, we you give and you get. So if the UK offers us access to territorial waters to fish, then on the other hand, they will get access to the single market to export their uh, delicious fish. It's positive that despite the delay in the publication of the UK's draft text on fisheries, this is one of the few areas where the EU and the UK have actually managed to achieve some progress during the last negotiating round, bringing the two at the beginning completely divergent positions closer to each other on five or six key areas. Of course, we're not there yet to strike a deal. One thing Michel Barnier always points out, and he has experience as uh, having dealt with fisheries policies in Paris and Brussels, annual quotas, what the British side have been asking for, the EU cannot accept. This would simply be an impractical solution, um, I would say impossible to implement. So let's agree on multi-annual quotas, and then I believe that we can find a solution which should be built on the principles of the common fisheries policy. And on the timetable, well, we now have four months left since the 30th of June, the last day which would have given the UK government the opportunity to request an extension of the transition period. We now know that the UK will definitely leave our single market and the customs union on the 1st of January. This means that we need a ready text, finally negotiated text, by the 31st of October, perhaps the very, very latest, the beginning of November. But we still need enough time to ratify the agreement in the member states and uh, in the European Parliament. Of course, it will depend on what kind of agreement both sides uh, would, fin would, would find. There are two scenarios. Uh, one would require the consent of the European Parliament only. That is if we stay in the domain of EU exclusive competences. Or uh, the other scenario is that we would have an agreement requiring the consent of the European Parliament and the ratification by 
national parliaments, which we call a mixed type agreement. Of course, a second case would require more time for ratification and also perhaps more uncertainty since all 27 member state parliaments are involved. What I'm trying to say is when it comes to the timetable, the deal cannot be done at a last minute. And there's no appetite here in Brussels uh, to have uh, emergency meetings on the 28th, 29th, 30th and 31st of October till uh, five in the morning. And we should use this, these new negotiating rounds we're supposed to be more focused, more political in July and August. And then both sides really need to have a serious conversation. Are we going to find an agreement? Is there political determination and willingness? And if not, then we should step up our preparations for British withdrawal of the single market and the customs union without an agreement. I'm really pleased you raised that because it's um, something that the Institute for Government has been looking at quite closely and trying to highlight the complexity of, as you say, EU ratification this time round, depending on the kind of agreement and who would need to vote on it. Um, the Institute's also done some work on looking at ways to try and secure more time. So say, for example, both sides realised that actually they did need more time for ratification or preparation for a new agreement. We got a question from John Bell who asks, would the European Parliament support an extension by other means? So for example, if you had the option of trying to modify the end of the transition period in the withdrawal agreement or creating a new transition period or simply trying to phase in the new relationship. Are those things the European Parliament is, you know, are you looking at that or is it very much the deadline has been missed and that is it? During the first phase of this sad story of Brexit, during the Brexit negotiations, the European Union played a constructive role. Uh, we extended dates, always trying to limit the consequences for citizens and businesses. And the European Parliament also played a constructive role. Our votings weren't as exciting as the ones in the House of Commons. We just did our work. Uh, so the European Union will continue to be constructive. However, on the date of extending the transition period, we all know it takes two to tango. The European Union has been open to extend the transition period. We have been told off by our British counterparts that under no circumstances they want to discuss this. Under no circumstances, and the 1st of January, it's the 1st of January. So if there was change of mind in London and we a flexible solution would be required. I think we would be the last to say no. But since the UK representatives in all meetings have been so clear about this, and we have also been told to stop discussing this uh, in public, what can you do? I think um, I try to be as diplomatic as possible. As a pragmatic Christian Democrat, I would always say this whole Brexit is a big mess, but let's try and make the best out of this mess. And that is, we have to accept that the UK will not only leave our European Union, but also the customs union, the single market. But let's try and limit the negative consequences for citizens and businesses. But one thing is clear, the real change 
didn't take place on the 1st of February, the real change will take place on the 1st of January next year because the UK will then learn you cannot leave the single market and the customs union and keep all the benefits. The UK will then simply be a third country and the third country is not in the same position as a member state of the EU or the single market. So I'm, I'm sort of detecting there when, when there is political will, there, there might be a legal way to try and limit the damage. But at the moment, the conversation is very much there will be change on the 1st of January, come what may. We focused obviously a lot on the negotiations, but there is also the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. And we know that a particular concern is the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And I've heard you speak about this before in interviews. We received a question from uh, Lord Kinnell, who is the chair of the... Yes, yeah. (laughs) Good man, good man. Uh, House of Lords European Union Committee. Um, And I think his question was really about scrutiny. So obviously saying, you know, the European... How has the European Parliament found the scrutiny of the work of the Joint Committee? For our listeners, the Joint Committee is that body responsible for overseeing the, the application of the withdrawal agreement. And I think he was particularly interested in, you know, assuming there is a UK-EU deal, what lessons are there in terms of scrutiny uh, would the European Parliament take away and how would that apply to the future UK-EU deal? The political declaration, as we have learned in the last few weeks, is not legally binding. It's only politically binding, which obviously doesn't mean much for some in London. The withdrawal agreement is definitely legally binding. And for the European Parliament, the full implementation of the withdrawal agreement is extremely important. And the UK has made a number of commitments in the withdrawal agreement, especially regarding the Irish-Northern Irish border, which are of crucial importance for us because the European Union tries to avoid drawing red lines. But One red line is certainly that we need to protect the integrity of our single market. And since Northern Ireland will have a special status attached to the single market, the rules for protecting the integrity of the single market also need to apply to Northern Ireland. We still need to see from the British government a detailed timetable and the implementation of the necessary measures such as preparing for the implementation of the EU Customs Code and the introduction of custom procedures for goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain. Uh, The measures need to ensure that all necessary SPS controls as well as other regulatory checks can be carried out in respect of goods entering Northern Ireland from outside the EU, which is also necessary to create clarity for businesses. The European Parliament will remain vigilant about the implementation of the withdrawal agreement and especially the protocol in Ireland and Northern Ireland. As we have said on numerous occasions, this is kind of a litmus test for the success of our future partnership. Having spoken to representatives in Belfast, I know that one issue is politically sensitive and we don't want to spark or cause any additional sparks but i have to also admit that 
the European Parliament is critical of the UK's refusal to allow the European Union to establish a technical office in Belfast because there will have to be some kind of administrative infrastructure in Northern Ireland to check whether the promises in the withdrawal agreement have actually been realised. Um, on the implement on the scrutiny of the uh, withdrawal agreement, we as the UK coordination group meet about every 10, 14 days with Michel Barnier. We're always briefed before a negotiating round or immediately debriefed after a negotiating round. Um, Michel Barnier's cooperation with the European Parliament is, is excellent, but we're also briefed and debriefed by Maros Shevchevich, who chairs the Joint Committee together with David Gove on a regular uh, basis. And um, I know that especially the Committee on Constitutional Affairs is very, very eager to follow the further implementation of the withdrawal agreement. So these two issues are uh, interlinked. And uh, I know that the UK is working hard on implementing the withdrawal agreement, but also here we're starting to running we're starting to run out of time. We only have six months left, and the UK side made a big promise, but they had to make this big promise to avoid the creation of a hard border on the island of Ireland. Thank you, and I I think you're absolutely right. There is sometimes an underappreciation in the UK of how sort of internally the discussions work between the different EU institutions. So you you mentioned regular contact with Michel Barnier, who obviously heads the negotiations on behalf of the EU, but also constant feedback. Um, and I guess that will be expected um, over the coming years as well, given that the joint committee will continue to meet so long um, as the Northern Ireland Protocol um, applies. Um, I just wanted to take the sort of these last minutes to think kind of further ahead. When the referendum uh, result was announced, I remember you being interviewed um, and you said the UK and the EU will and must always remain allies and close friends. Um, and I know that the resolution uh, from the European Parliament calls for a close relationship. But where do you see the long-term strategic relationship between the UK and the EU in five to ten years' time? And does that very much depend on the outcome of negotiations this year? Well, I still do hope that in the end we can find a comprehensive and deep new partnership between the United Kingdom and the European Union. Uh, Chancellor Merkel spoke about this in the German Bundestag. You might have followed it. Um, and um, she, more or less in a very pragmatic way, uh, underlined a lot that depends on the United Kingdom. The UK has to decide what kind of relationship they want. I think the offer from the European Union is very clear. We presented our negotiating mandate from the first day. It was everyone who was interested was able to read what we're offering. At the moment, nobody can predict if we will find an agreement or not. I think there's a realistic chance that we won't find an agreement. We have to be very sure about this. But whatever happens, if we find an agreement or not, the UK certainly won't sail away towards Newfoundland. The UK will remain our neighbour. 
very close to us and highly interconnected. And as Chancellor Merkel already said, the day after the UK referendum, I'll never forget that she said, as much as we regret this democratic decision, as much as we are very sad to see our British partners leave the European Union, there's no need to be nasty. The UK will always remain an important trade partner, a political partner in the United Nations, in G7, in G20, in the OSCE, and also a loyal NATO ally. That's why I hope that we can build a future relationship uh, on this strong basis. But once again, it won't be the same as with an EU member state, and it won't be the same as with countries who are not at the EU, but in the single market like Norway, Iceland or Liechtenstein. It will be a tailor-made cooperation. I just do hope that the UK will always know that the world's largest single market is exactly at the doorstep. And our door will, by the way, always remain open. I still believe that a European Union with the United Kingdom in the end would be an even better place than without the United Kingdom. Many, many here in Brussels are very, very sad that the British are no longer present, also here in this European Parliament. Which brings me sort of nicely, actually, to, to a question that I don't think is asked enough, actually, in Brussels or the UK is, you know, we talk about the UK leaving and, and sort of what that will mean. But the UK is changing, but the EU is changing also. And the next six months are obviously crucial uh, in finalising that seven year EU budget, finalising the coronavirus recovery fund. And my question that I often ask, you know, um, Brussels-based politicians like yourself, but also um, officials, is, you know, how has Brexit changed the EU and perhaps the European Parliament? And are there things concretely which it does now that it might not have been able to do had the UK still been a member state? Well, first of all, the British voice here in Brussels is missing in the council and especially in the European Parliament. Already since 2016, the UK wasn't very active in the Council, to put it in diplomatic terms. But until the last day, our British colleagues in the European Parliament were very active, and we had excellent uh, colleagues across uh, the political groups, hardworking colleagues who knew their dossiers and really made a difference. So... The political dynamics here in the European Parliament have changed after the elections in 2019, with or without Brexit, because we no longer have an old majority of the two big political forces, uh, my political family, the European People's Party, and the Social Democrats. We now have a three-party coalition, so we need to include the Liberals. As much as Brexit still plays a huge role in the UK, Here it's one issue among a lot of others, because shortly after the British left and Jack was no longer flying in front of the European institutions, uh, COVID-19 appeared. And the European Union in the moment is very much focused on the economic recovery. Uh, Germany started the EU presidency yesterday. It's going to be an extremely challenging presidency. And the main tasks are, as you mentioned, 
uh, the multi-annual financial framework. We need to find an agreement, hopefully before the summer break, so we can plan uh, for the 1st of January 2021 onwards. Uh, in Closely connected to the multi-annual financial framework is the European Recovery Fund, where Charles Michel needs to, first of all, find an agreement among the 27 member states and then negotiate the details with the European Parliament. So the focus is very much on these issues, but of course, the second big challenge for the German presidency be your country. And even though Michel Barnier is negotiating on behalf of the 27 member states with his team. Of course, in the end, there will be a lot of political talks among leaders and Chancellor Merkel will, as I know, try and play a constructive role. But, and I'll repeat myself here, Chancellor Merkel, for good reasons, said the European Union should be less busy defining the UK's position. It's up to the UK itself to, to find a position. Boris Johnson at the high-level meeting two weeks ago said that it's time to put some tiger in the tank. So he wanted to give the negotiations a new momentum. Yes, what we now need is political leadership in London because we can't go on like we did after the third and the fourth negotiating round having dozens of experts sitting on both sides of the negotiating table discussing very complex details. But in the end, we need to see, is there still political determination and willingness to find an agreement? Then let's identify landing zones and prepare this until the end of October. Or if the British side says, no, level playing field, fisheries, governance issues, this is all not acceptable for us then this is also a statement, then we will indeed have to uh, step up our preparations uh, for a no deal. The European Commission already uh, is updating its preparedness notices for businesses, and we stand ready to face whatever comes our way, deal or no deal. Thank you very much, uh, David, for that. I think the main message is this is not going to be a calm summer or a normal summer where most people in Brussels in August uh, go back, relax and sort of, you know, come back in September energised. I feel there's, there are going to be many, many talks taking place over the summer, not least for our negotiators, but also on other issues that, that are really important and will need to be finalised between now and the end of the year. The Institute for Government will be following all of this very closely. But for now, thank you very much, David McAllister, and we look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. <laughs>